All right, we are closing out this book, closing out the book of Daniel. How many of you guys have uh, enjoyed this study? Yeah, good. Uh, how many of you guys have had struggles with the, at least the second half of this study? Yeah. <laughs> uh, how many of you guys, even as we read that, was like, what is going on? <laughs> okay, good. You're not alone. Um, that's part of the joy of this book. As we uh, conclude this study, we're moving on. We're going to spend a couple weeks just kind of um, some final thoughts on the book as a whole and its implications for the New Testament, how the New Testament was in response and related to some of the things that happened here. Um, but yeah, we, we made it through. This second half of this book, from chapter 7 on, have been tough ones. And a lot of people actually just kind of skip this in your Bible reading. Like, how many of you guys honestly would normally just kind of pass this through? Anybody honest? <laughs> or read it and be like, what is going on? I hope, my hope, our hope as the elders, that this has been really encouraging. And hopefully you have some tools in your in your like tool chest now to help better understand as you come across passages like this and as you read through apocalyptic literature and prophecy that hopefully you at least have some tools in your hands to be able to interpret these better. Okay, so as, as I was prepping and thinking about the concluding chapter in this book, uh, I was thinking about last chapters, and it reminded me, it's just it's kind of silly, but as I first started reading the Bible when I was a teenager, probably towards the end of my freshman year of high school, I started really reading the Bible, and I somehow had in my mind, probably from trying to like do the bare minimum, that if I, and I don't even know where I learned this, but if I read the table of contents, and I read the first chapter and the last chapter, I kind of understand the book. So I, I successfully achieved doing this with a lot of my teachers. I like, wrote book reports based off of this. But I attempted to do that with the Bible. The table of contents was not much help. I had no idea that it was a collection of books. So I'm like, this makes no sense at all. I started reading the first chapter in the beginning, and I'm like, okay, I, I know this part. I remember this from, like, when I was a kid, and I was in Sunday school. Then I turned to Revelation, and I read Revelation first, and uh, it was a mess. Thank God I had, I had a, a patient youth pastor <laughs> that taught me how to read the Scripture and spent time with me teaching me uh, the correct way to approach the Scriptures. In a lot of ways, though, as silly as that is, this last chapter of Daniel is a fitting conclusion. Like, you, you get a lot of the main themes, a lot of the sort of the thrust behind this book are resolved in this chapter. And in a lot of ways, um, Daniel's doing that. So as we jump into this, it's not just a fitting conclusion uh, for the book, but as we talked about for the last Two weeks, this last section is one vision, starting in chapter 10. 
you get the, sort of this introduction and the backdrop being set. Chapter 11 is this very detailed vision and very detailed, covering essentially 350 years and then telescoping forward into our still future, looking at the Antichrist and his agenda. Tonight is the conclusion of that vision. You'll notice in the first four verses or so, it's still, it's still very much in that vision. It's the conclusion and the summing up of that, that particular vision, but also of the whole book. So let's look at this. First John, I know we're, I said let's look at chapter 12, but First John chapter 3 the Apostle John makes this amazing declaration. He says this, 1 John 3, starting in verse 1. See what love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been appeared, has not yet appeared. But we will know, we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. The John follows up this verse with a clear application Verse 3 here, he says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John's point, and this ties back into Daniel, John's point here is that future destiny, the Implications of something that's going to happen in the future has direct correlation to your discipleship now. The future destiny directly impacts your discipleship. What I will be someday will mold and shape how I live today. What is going to happen in the future or what you believe will happen in the future will have implications for how you live now. This is, in my opinion, this is one of the most important things that we have to figure out in our discipleship. I think this is a clear tactic of the enemy is to get us to be so focused on today and our own struggles right here and right now that we can't see clearly with an eternal perspective, the big picture. We can't see with clarity that God knows what he's doing. And when we put our life in proper perspective, when we realize that this whole thing is moving forward, it provides motivation for our discipleship. It fuel to move us forward, to drive us towards holiness and purity. Because if you can see him, you will be like him. I think we see the same message here being conveyed in the 12th chapter of Daniel. 
the hope of a future resurrected body, it provides motivation for disciple-making and personal holiness. Hope of a future resurrection, it provides motivation for disciple-making and for personal holiness. I think there's several clear implications that we can see in this chapter alone that speak to the whole book. Daniel 12 teaches us how to live as faithful exiles, that theme that we've been looking at this whole time. It helps us answer the question, how can we live as kingdom citizens, as citizens of another kingdom, as dedicated disciples, as followers of Jesus in a land that is strange or even hostile towards your discipleship? The vision that began in chapter 11, it concludes in verse 4 of our chapter tonight. 5 through 13 then push towards a conclusion. Chapter 12 is, like I said, a fitting finale. It's a guide for what it looks like to live as a faithful exile. One of the commentators said it's an eschatological ethic that's characterized by the whole of Scripture. Let's look at this. We're going to walk through this just kind of verse by verse, the first section here. Look at some implications here. First implication, I think we can be confident in God's protection and his rescue for us. Let's look at verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who, was, who has charge of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found in the book. At that time, that links clearly, I think, verse 1 here with the, the second part of chapter 11 that we looked at last week. And if you weren't here last week, you can get the podcast. I think it's clearly pointing to that reign, that time of that Antichrist influence that is yet telescoped for the future. And when that day arrives, when that moment in history comes, God will raise up, this is the, what we see from this chapter, God will raise up this angel Michael, who's identified as the great prince who stands watch over your people. Jude 9 calls him an archangel. Revelation 12, 7 through 12 says that he leads a victorious war against Satan and his demons. Michael's not playing around. Michael and all of the angels, Hebrews 1 says, are ministering spirits who are sent to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. He for sure was ministering to, Dave, to Daniel then and is ministering today to God's people. But at the time of trouble, as Daniel says, or the, the time of the end, he and others, I'm sure, will intensify their involvement. Spiritual beings will be more involved on behalf of God's people. One of the commentators said this, 
From Daniel 10, we understand Michael to be a warrior advocate for Israel who takes up the baton on their behalf. He says, there are unseen legions standing behind the wobbly people of God in their darkest troubles. This is the unveiling behind them. So I think this first implication is that we can and should be confident in God's protection as you live for Jesus, that his angels are on your side, that that's what it says, and they are busy working on your behalf, that he's dispatched them. But ultimately, a time of unprecedented trouble, this is what the scripture says, is coming for God's people. I think that the news for us is, however, don't be alarmed. The promise here is that at that time, your people shall be delivered. And who are Daniel's people? You'll see this a lot, and this we'll, we'll probably look at this as we look at the New Testament implications. Who are Daniel's people? Everyone whose name is written in the book. This is a clear reference in my mind to the Lamb's book of life. In Revelation chapter 12, Revelation 20, the book of life. So the Antichrist might rage against the holy people. And it seems, it might seem for a while even, that he's going to win and be victorious. Saints might suffer. They might die. And the, the word here is don't panic. Don't be afraid. Deliverance is on the way. Daniel 7 promised it. There is coming one like the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, and he will come and he will reign victoriously. The second implication here. Sorry if this is heavy stuff. Second implication. Be ready for trouble and intense persecution even. We learn from verse 1 and later on in verse 7 that we need to be ready. Christians, we need to be ready because there will be trouble and intense persecution. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says this, starting in verse 12. Indeed, all those who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, then this is, I think we look at that first part and there's, there's a, as for you, what do we do with that? What do we do with the promise that there's going to be persecution? As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from where, from whom you've learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breathed. We all know that verse, right? The context there. This is a biblical theme. It runs throughout the story of redemptive history. Both Testaments. 
But ultimately, as history draws to a close, or however that works out, opposition, persecution will increase. Suffering will escalate, and this is what Daniel says, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since nations came, since nation came into its beginning until that time. Verse 7 adds, when the shattering of power of the holy people come, that's it's kind of intense language. This is when all of these things will be finished. Jeremiah 30 called this the time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus in Mark 13 said, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Trouble is coming. Trouble is on its way. It comes now, of course, in like the ebbs and flows of struggles and hard times, of normal life in a broken and fallen world. Like it, it, trouble comes. But there's coming something even greater than that. Such trouble of the normal ebbs and flows of life is only a hint or a shadow. It's a foretaste of what it will be. And since we have no idea of when that day will be, we must live and prepare now. Living as a holy people, even if we're shattered and scattered and broken into pieces, must be a vital part of our discipleship. Pursuing holiness now when you have options Learning to follow the way of Jesus now when it's not hard. The philosopher John Lennox wrote a book on Daniel. He said this about this verse. He said, it is hard to get one's mind around this grim statement. The time of Antiochus was horrendous as was the period at the later fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The Holocaust was horrible. But Daniel indicates that there is an even worse time to come. But we're to be prepared, to be ready, to not get caught or surprised. And yet... As is a theme throughout this whole book, there's hope. Hope in the resurrection. Verse 2, Daniel 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. This verse is one of the most clear verses, clear teachings in the Old Testament of what scholars call a double resurrection. There's elsewhere where the resurrection of the righteous is made clear, but here it's everyone is raised, the righteous and the unrighteous. This is what the New Testament teaches as well. 
Our hope in God's deliverance is centered as a Christian on the resurrection. That one day, the empty tomb of Jesus in Jerusalem is our guarantee, and that in one day, everyone will be raised. Verse 2 discusses this future hope in, in terms of a general resurrection, both the righteous and the unrighteous. We know from Jesus that this resurrection day is also a, a separation day. He talks about it in terms of sheep and goats being separated. But there is a day when everyone will be raised. Some shall awake to everlasting life because their names were found written in a book, the book of life. And others, tragically, will raise to shame and everlasting contempt. Only to be cast, Revelation 20 says, into the lake of fire. That's not even intended for them. I know this is not a popular thought. This is not like something that we like to like feel good about. This is ultimately, though, good news. Think about yourself. Think of those being persecuted. Think of the persecuted church that is literally laying their life down for, to read fragments of the Scripture. Think of those being victimized or abused. This is good news that God will raise everyone. There will be judgment and recompense for sin. It's good news for us that we are in Christ Jesus, atoned for at the cross. So when we are raised, our name is written in that book of life. C.S. Lewis, I got a bunch of quotes tonight. C.S. Lewis, in sort of the only way he can do it, uh, he helps us understand this a little bit in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which... If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a whore and a corruption such as you, would, as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, this, this is what he says, all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal it is immortals with whom you joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortals that are going towards horror or everlasting splendor. Verse 3. It's the fourth implication here. We are to live wisely, 
Live as the wise and point others towards Jesus. Verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The wise, according to verse 3, are busy about the business of disciple-making. They are making disciples. They are teaching others to practice the way of Jesus. They're doing, I think, what we looked at last week in chapter 11, verse 32. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall make many understand. Those who know their God encourage others to turn to him. They proclaim the good news. Those who influence others to go on walking in righteousness shall assist them in remaining faithful no matter what pressures come. And Daniel says they'll shine like the stars forever and ever. John Calvin said this about this passage. No, no one of God's children ought to, be conf- ought to confine their attention privately to themselves. But as far as possible, everyone ought to interest himself to the welfare of his brethren. God has deposited the teaching of his salvation within us, not for the purpose of our private keeping it to ourselves, but for pointing out the way of salvation to all of mankind. To live wisely, to point people to the way of Jesus. Then how do we do that? Verse 4. That we treasure God's word. We grow in our understanding of it. Verse 4 is a bit tricky. It's often, I think, misunderstood. Verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. It's interesting to me. This is a little bit surprising. What do you mean, shut up the book? (laughs) Like, you just gave me this vision. Do I hide this and put it away to where nobody can ever see it? I don't think that's actually the, the point here. I think the idea is not to hide the words, but to protect them and to keep them safe. You would seal a document to make sure that it was preserved as, as genuine and kept its authority. It has a double sense of both authenticating and preserving it. God's people, we need this word from God. We need the book of Daniel. We need this apocalyptic hope. We're going to need it more and more as the day draws near. We need to not be taken by surprise. And I think as the fulfillment of that day draws near, this is the way I read this verse, the wise will seek to comprehend these prophecies and God will give them understanding and knowledge of them.
sixth implication, I think. I don't have them numbered. Looking at verse 10, pursue holiness. But ultimately, understand that the world will be the world. Verse 10, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. As faithful exiles, we're to pursue holiness, to purify ourselves, and to be refined. In those days, the days of great distress and trouble, or even in the ebbs and flows of your normal trouble, then God will see you as his holy people. But this, strangely, is is reassuring to me. The wicked will remain accustomed to their wicked practices. The world's the world. The wicked will act wickedly. It's kind of like, okay. They do what they do. The Lord's wise ones will discern the issues of the time and what they are called to do. They'll discern what it will cost them, and they will do it. This next one. This is the last one here. I think one of the overall themes of this whole book, endure to the end, knowing that it is worth it. Patiently trust that God will resolve things at the right time. Verse 5 through 9, the vision shifts to two other angels, apparently. They join Gabriel who's been talking to Daniel, and they stand on opposite sides of probably the Tigris River. Neither one of them says a word. And then the man clothed in linen appears again above the waters of the stream. Scholars debate, is this a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus? dressed in priestly garbs. One of the angels asks this figure who's above the water, how long until these days to the end of these wonders? How long until the end of these wonders? How long will these extraordinary things go and how long will they take place? When is it going to stop? There's an urgency. You can kind of feel it in their request. How long? It's fascinating to me that these are angels asking this figure. These are spiritual beings, and they don't know. This being in the middle of the water raises his arms to heaven, and he says, raises his arms towards heaven, and he swore to him who lives eternally. We don't, we don't actually know what that what happened there. 
But the answer to the angels is sort of twofold. He says this. He says, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. Probably three and a half years. That's the best way I think to interpret a time, times, and a half. Secondly, he says, this terrible and intense time of distress will end This is the hope for us. It will end right on time. According to God's timetable, when the power of the holy people is shattered. That's the way I read that. When all of these things are accomplished, the point there is that God has ordained an appropriate time. He's not moved or shaken He's appointed a time for this to happen and a time for it to end. When evil has done its worst, we are told that as soon as it is finished, all of these events are complete. The evil one has done its worst. At that moment, it will end. At the appropriate time, God will intervene. Look at verse 8. This is encouraging for me. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? So this is Daniel. He's heard all of this. He just had this vision. He's, he heard that there's going to be this time limit on it that God's in control, he's got it all planned, he doesn't understand. Daniel, the great like interpreter of dreams and this mighty man, he doesn't understand. So he asks, what shall be the outcome of these things? Verse 9 gives the reply, it's probably not the one he wanted. Daniel is told, simply, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed for a time at the end. Daniel's confused. He's troubled. And he asks, he prays, what is going on? And he gets an answer, but it's not what he was looking for. He says, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed. Go about your life, Daniel. Go about your business. You have received all that you're going to get, and that's enough. This prophecy and its understanding will come more clearly as it comes. As God unveils history, things will become more clear. The word is protected, should be preserved, and everything will happen as God intends it to happen at the right time. But you, Daniel, go your way. Be faithful. Trust him. Be patient. I think this is the point of this chapter for us, at least one of our key takeaways for us. 
Endure faithfully. Trust the Lord. Trust that God will bring about the end that he sees fit when he sees fit. How he sees fit. Our Lord promises that he will bless those who endure and who persevere through these difficult and troubling times. And I think there's those specific numbers that we see in verse 11 and 12. You get like a number of days and there's a whole bunch of different theories on these. My simple takeaway there is we get these specific numbers to affirm God's sovereignty and his sovereign control over the unfolding of history. He knows exactly what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. He's not shaken by the unfolding of events that happen in front of us. Things will move ahead just as he decreed they would. And things will also end just as he decreed they would. There's wonderful hope and assurance that we have to remain in this like tension of this mystery with all the particulars. And I think it's, it's good, and you should, like, what, this, what does this mean? How does this, what are different ways that this has been interpreted throughout history? How, how can we look at these different numbers? That's all fun to look at. But I think the, like, key takeaway, for me at least, is that he knows exactly. He's not shaken or moved. This book, the book of Daniel, I think concludes with this personal word for Daniel that I think we can all benefit from. Verse 13. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This angel tells Daniel, you in your last years, Daniel's an old man at this time, you're in the end, but you still have work. Go your way, Daniel. When it's time for you to retire from his work, he'll bring you home. I think that's the reassurance there. But Daniel, for now, go your way. Do your duty. Make disciples. Proclaim my word. Endure. Something ultimately is wonderful on the horizon, but for now, go your way. That is, I believe, the theme of this whole book. Remember, as the Jews were being marched to Babylon, they get that letter from Jeremiah. We started with this several weeks ago, months ago now. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. 
that they may be they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city that I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it is in, it, in its welfare that you will find your welfare. Over and over through this book, we've seen the evidence of the fact that God is sovereign. He's the one that led them into exile. That wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's doing. It wasn't Babylon's doing. God led them as a father disciplining his son to Babylon. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar. He raised up the Babylonians. He raised up the Persians. He brought Cyrus to power. He moved his heart ultimately to send the people back to their homeland. The whole time... The charge to God's people was to be faithful in whatever situation they were in, to live faithful. To pray for the good of their city. To live, as we looked at last week, as those who know their God. And to make him known to the lost and dying world around them. As we looked at way at the beginning of this study, we are called to live as a creative minority, as faithful exiles, faithful witnesses. I was thinking about this, just rethinking through this whole series. John Tyson, he defined a creative minority in his study of Daniel, and this is what he said, a creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of the world. That's the thrust of this book. When we think about what that means, what it means to live as faithful exiles, We should be thinking in terms of Jesus' vision for humanity. We should be thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. We should be thinking about the practicing the way of Jesus in the everyday life. Our kingdom witness isn't just about critiquing people or even deconstructing culture. It's about living out the implications of a new way of living, the implications of a new kingdom. Living out what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus in the midst of options, in a culture that doesn't make it easy. We are to be a community practicing the way of Jesus in a culture of competing options. We're to live, to act, to talk differently. To proclaim the good news. I'm going to pray and we'll close. Father, I thank you for your word. God, as, as we... 
look to live faithfully and to endure and to persevere through whatever comes, through the normal ebbs and flows of difficult life or great calamity that might come. God, we ask that you would help us to set our eyes on you, that we would look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, that we would focus on you, that we would live faithfully as those who are set apart that we would display the gospel, that we would live as the wise, that we would share the good news to those around us, to our friends and our family, co-workers. God, give us a fresh vision for all that you want to do. In Jesus' name.